1: Back when Steve Bannon worked in the White House, he had this whiteboard in his office. It contained an exhaustive list of the things he hoped President Trump would accomplish, everything from repealing Obamacare to canceling federal funding for sanctuary cities. If you listen to Steve Bannon now, though, you get the sense he's still got a list like this, just waiting to be checked off. Bannon calls his podcast The War Room, as if he was still hunkered down at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But that's not the most important thing to know about a show.
2: The, the important thing to know about Steve Bannon's podcast is it is one of the most popular, consistently, one of the most popular shows on Apple's platform. It has tens of millions of downloads.
1: Isaac Arnsdorf reports for ProPublica has been keeping tabs on the war room these days.
2: You know, this this podcast has really become a watering hole for for far-right figures.
1: Like who's showing up on this show?
2: Well, um Congressman Matt Gates, Senator Josh Hawley are some of the names you might recognize, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow
1: guy. These guests are loyal to President Trump. Many think the 2020 election was stolen. Which is why Steve Bannon's got this new bucket list. And right at the top is a whole new idea about what to do next.
2: The success stories we've heard from around the country, and we're going to start getting more of these on the air, uh, are, are amazing. And people got to understand. The establishment
1: Bannon has been, been encouraging his listeners to flood they they the very fight. lowest levels of the Republican Party. The
2: at the school board level, right, at the, at the county supervisor level. At the precinct level, this is, we're taking it, we're going to take this back village by village, precinct by precinct, village by village. Precinct strategy. So what he's actually talking about is uh, precinct chairs or, or precinct committee
1: members. If you think about the Republican National Committee as a pyramid, these precinct people make up the base. They knock on doors, get out the vote, support the people leading the party in D.C., but they also have these powers. Sometimes they can choose who's going to run for statewide office. Other times, they nominate the people who will oversee elections, which is why they've become part of Bannon's new strategy.
2: And the idea behind this strategy is to take over the party from the bottom up by taking over all these precinct positions, which are often not contested and just there for the taking. And the theory is that if they can do that, then they can make sure next time the party fights harder, the party leaves nothing on the table, the party makes sure that the Democrats can't get away with stealing another election.
1: It's funny because I'm used to people organizing to get a candidate elected. This is a much more processy argument.
2: That's what's different about this movement. It's not about just a candidate, it's not about just a policy, it's about elections themselves.
1: Today on the show, after losing the presidency in 2020, Some diehard Republicans want to make sure that doesn't happen again. To do that, they need to flood the zone. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. These precinct positions, Steve Bannon's been encouraging his listeners to fill, they go by a lot of names. Election inspector, precinct committeeman, but Isaac Arnsdorf simply calls them precinct officers. They are party functionaries. Republicans and Democrats have them. And their responsibilities vary state by state.
2: So overall, the the, the key thing to understand is that the, the county party, the local party officials have direct influence on the election administration through these like formal mechanisms, and every state's a little different, but that's the basic idea. And so, to give you some specific examples. In Wisconsin, the the election is run by the county clerk, but the poll workers, who are technically called election inspectors, are nominated by the county party. And the law says that the county clerk has to hire the party's poll workers if they provide them. And in the past, this really hasn't been an issue because the parties like basically didn't bother. They were like, well, you know, on election day, it's more important to us to have our volunteers out doing other things. But now it's different. Now county chairs are going, wait a minute, we need to stack we need these positions. We need to send the county clerk really long lists of really hardcore Republicans so that we can make sure we've got people in the precincts running the polls who are looking out for fraud.
1: I know that ProPublica contacted GOP leaders in 65 key counties. Can you just lay out the basics of exactly what you found when you called those people? Because it's dramatic. You found a big increase.
2: So we contacted the local party officials in 65 counties in the most electorally significant states. So the the ones you're used to hearing about on election night, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, the states that decide elections. And we asked them how many new precinct officers or whatever they call it they've had since February, which is when Bannon started promoting this. And Total, in aggregate, it was more than 8,500. And the, out of the 65 counties, 41 of them said they had seen an increase. And one of the ways that we tried to check ourselves, um, you know, is this really a thing, was looking at the Democrats as sort of a control group. So we could compare past increases in Republican precinct officers, and we could also see if there's anything similar going on on the Democratic side. And like in Maricopa County, Arizona, you know, which is more than half the state's population, there actually was official data for both parties. And so you could actually see how the Republican line on the chart just shoots up and the Democratic line is flat.
1: When did you realize that this sort of conservative media ecosystem was involved? Like, when did you start hearing people say to you, like, oh, well, I I heard about this on Bannon's podcast?
2: So the way that we reported this was we called around to the, the county party chair in important counties in these competitive states, and we just asked them, you know, hey, all of a sudden, are you getting a ton of people calling you asking to be precinct chairs? Because like, that's a little weird, right? You know, the average voter has never heard of a precinct chair, you know, much less is interested in being one. So um, can we substantiate, are there is there a sudden surge of people wanting to be precinct chairs? And we focused on those competitive states and electorally significant counties because we couldn't survey all 3,000 counties in the U.S., And not everywhere we checked, but overwhelmingly, for the most part, the answer was, yes, we've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, sometimes this was as confusing to the county chair as anyone else.
1: Yeah, my favorite story that you told was a guy from Fort Worth who said people kept calling asking about precinct committeemen. And I was like, what are you talking about? We don't have those here. And then he realized where they were coming from.
2: Right. So that was sort of a shibboleth because the precinct committee man is what they called it on Bannon's podcast. But actually in Texas, the term that they use is precinct chair. So that was like a tell that they were coming from Bannon's podcast.
1: It's interesting because the idea, you reported this, it didn't seem to come from Bannon himself, but this guy, Daniel Schultz, who's from Arizona and was a Tea Party guy, and had been sort of beating this drum of let's get into these low-level positions for a little while. Do we know how this guy bent Bannon's ear?
2: Yeah, so Bannon didn't come up with this himself. He just kind of plucked it out of obscurity and called up this guy who's been saying the same thing for more than a decade, and no one ever listened until Bannon gave him the platform. Thanks, Steve. It's it's real simple. And uh, most people learn this, at least I did back in the late 60s in seventh grade in social studies in civics class. Um, Essentially.
1: Daniel Schultz, uh, is he a political guy? Like, is he a professor of political science? Is he an interested, regular guy with a different job? Like, who is that guy?
2: He's an insurance lawyer. Um, and he's a precinct committee man. So he got involved in the party at the local level. I think it was in 2007. And he, he clearly became fascinated with this this possibility that if if lots of people like him did what he did and he signed up his kids to do this eventually but if lots of people his like kids yeah when they were of age if lots of people like him went just would just go out and become precinct committee men then they could take over the republican party and it would be a political That's revolution a political so to speak we can take over the party if we invade it and it's You know, look, if we conservatives don't take over the Republican Party, we're going to lose our republic. Because he calls it the most powerful position in politics. You know, it's not the president. It's the precinct committee member.
1: It's interesting because I think it's important that this guy, Daniel Schultz, started as a Tea Party person. And the reason why is that I remember a decade ago when the Tea Party stuff was happening. And there was so much focus on these town halls. People from Washington would go home and they would be confronted by Tea Party activists at these town halls. It was was interesting video to watch. You'd see it on the TV news. And I've heard some people talk about how after January 6th, after this past election, they weren't seeing that. Like, oh, it looks like that's not happening now and they sort of s- were implying like okay that means that we've dodged a bullet or something like so- something is not happening and that's interesting but when you lay out what you're laying out here it seems to me that actually we're just seeing something different like a focus not on the elected officials but on the process itself well
2: but it's also i mean the the elected officials are directly accountable to the party, that is a key part of their constituency. When the member of Congress or, you know, or the senator or the presidential candidate is planning a trip or an event in some place, they're going to reach out to the county chair in that county for help organizing it, or, you know, if they want to take the electorate's temperature on something, that's going to be one of their first calls.
1: Which is why it's such an interesting evolution of the strategy, because it's not just going as a constituent. It's saying, I want, you know, I can't be in the room where it happens, maybe, but I'll be adjacent to that room. And, you know, I'll kind of control how you get to Washington, not just, you know, vote.
2: That's right, and and that's Dan Schultz's case. Is that if you want them to actually pay attention to you, you introduce yourself as a precinct committee man, and then they have to listen because you know you actually literally are the party. And but but I think the the distinction with the Tea Party is an important one. You know, remember the Tea Party at least at the beginning, it was about forming tea party groups and going to tea party meetings and yeah you know, eventually those people kind of knocked down the wall and came into the Republican party but it was about at the beginning a you know a parallel structure attacking the establishment and this is different this they're not going to tea party meetings they're going to Republican party meetings this is explicitly inside the party it is the party organization itself
1: i guess we just need to say out loud that there's no evidence that any of these newly minted workers in the party are going to do a bad job, right? Like there there's no evidence of that yet. Like what what do we know about the intentions of folks who are taking these positions?
2: What we know is what they what they say, uh, which is that they're there because they believe. The election, the last election, was stolen, and they believe that um, their activism and their participation in this role is going to prevent that from happening again. And so, what do what do they mean by that? They're talking about new voting restrictions, like we've seen in Georgia and Texas. They're talking about audits, like the one in Arizona, and that some other states are trying to do now. Um, They're talking about becoming. Poll workers themselves, um, so they can be the people actually in the polling place, you know, on the lookout for fraud. They're talking about uh, appointing people like them to the board that supervises the local election, and they're talking about getting rid of the quote unquote "rhinos" who Trump is always talking about. You know, they the lesson Republicans
1: that they, in name only,
2: right? The the the. The lesson that they took away from twenty twenty is that you know, yeah, the Democrats committed widespread fraud, but really, the reason that Trump isn't president anymore is because the Republican Party let him down, they sold him out because they knew that the election was stolen, and they didn't stop it, and they're they're talking about people like. Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, who Trump wanted to find enough votes to change the outcome, and he wouldn't do it, or the, the county and state officials in Arizona who certified results, the results, and the state legislators who didn't um, appoint electoral college votes for Trump, uh, overriding the will of the voters in those states, and the members of Congress who didn't object on January 6th, and, and the purpose of taking over the party is to get rid of everyone like that so that next time there won't be anyone in the way. There won't be any Brad Raffensperger's.
1: More with Isaac Arnsdorf when we come back. Here, here's something i I couldn't quite figure out when I was reading your reporting, which is how did the people who'd been doing these jobs for a long time feel about this sudden surge in interest in what they do
2: so the The answer was a range. Some of these county chairs um were themselves. New in their position and they had been elected on this wave of newcomers who are dedicated to this movement. So they're obviously thrilled. Um, some of them were incumbent had 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 been there before and were, you know, just sort of happy to be to you know to see this this surge of enthusiasm. Uh, you know, I remember I talked to a house district chair in Arizona who was seeing this explosion of applicants for precinct committee members and you know w- was telling me how you know she knows some people screen them but she doesn't bother because she she really doesn't care who they are if they believe in qAnon or whatever if they're going to work for the party she's happy to have them and you know some others had you know more were more ambivalent about it they kind of wanted to figure out a way to harness the grassroots enthusiasm to win in 2022 and 2024. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there were people who, who really did not like what they were seeing, uh, did not think that this was a good way forward for the party or, frankly, for American democracy. Um, but the reality is uh, those people were mostly on their way out.
1: And Isaac says, there are plenty of newly activated conservatives looking to take over for this old guard, remaking the Republican Party in the process.
2: You know, I would point to the recent meeting of a county GOP in North Carolina, which is one of these counties that we found that's had a flood of newcomers at the local level and there was an appearance by Madison Cawthorn, um, one of the freshman members of Congress who spoke at the January 6th rally. And as part of the event, he autographed a shotgun that they were raffling off. And just a few minutes after brandishing this shotgun, he was even less subtle. You know, if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's, it's gonna lead to one place, and it's bloodshed. And I will tell you, as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. People in the audience said, that's right. And someone shouted out, when are you going to call us back to Washington? And people laughed and clapped. And he said, we're actively working on that one.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me how many of the people who are embracing this strategy of you know what they call invading the party they're they're pretty clear they use language like that it seems like a lot of the people who are talking about this are also toying with these ideas of violence in a pretty alarming way
2: you're right you know bannon is talking about things he makes he's talking about he's making comparisons to the opening battles of the revolutionary war he's talking about taking over the party village by village, which, you know, has this kind of guerrilla warfare sound to it. it it's already, we're already seeing it go beyond implied violence to, to, if not actual violence, the you know, the threat of violence.
1: That threat of violence, it almost became a reality in Clark County, Nevada. That's because a group of Proud Boys, a group of extremists, decided to get involved with their local precinct just as 2020 presidential votes were getting tallied up.
2: So actually, this started happening last year where the Proud Boys were getting more involved and they were holding rallies and, uh, and protests outside the counting sites and, um, you know, kind of campaign events for Repo- Republican candidates. Um, and then, And then what changed this year is... Uh, a few members of the Proud Boys started going to local Republican Party meetings, and they started recruiting other people who are not themselves Proud Boys, but were looking to become new members of the local party with the goal of replacing that party's moderate leadership with someone who worked on the Trump campaign and was a leader of the effort to overturn the election results in Nevada.
1: So Proud Boy Light, (laughs)
2: <laughs> what ended up happening is the existing party leadership could not hold a vote twice because they felt it was too dangerous that if they didn't admit the members who the Proud Boys had signed up or if things didn't go their way, that they couldn't guarantee everyone's security. The first meeting was just outright canceled. The second meeting they held and they had it at this High school auditorium with a ton of police presence. And there's video of people, you know, trying to bust through the back door past the police to get into this meeting so that they can vote for these hardcore Trump supporters. And they ended up shutting it down without a vote. So now it's in court because the slate that the Proud Boys were supporting ended up just holding their own election. And um, you know, electing th- those candidates to be the they're new like a
1: government po- in exile.
2: Well, the, you know, there's a dis- you know, there's uh, competing claims to the throne.
1: I mean, you quoted the the county chair who was at this meeting where people were pushing to get in, and the police were there, basically saying, "I'm not covering for you guys anymore," and leaving, and then resigning. You know, it just it sounded so dramatic.
2: Yeah, and he's he's one of these guys who, you know, doesn't think the election was stolen and, you know, much less that there's any point in fighting about it and um, you know, doesn't like seeing his party um filled with proud boys and doesn't understand uh why this is happening and had enough and, you know, couldn't couldn't continue with it.
1: I'm wondering for the party leaders you spoke to who we're worried about the ideologies of the new workers who are coming to them and wanting to get involved, how are they thinking about their response? Like, are they th- thinking about counter-organizing or adding screening procedures? Like, what's their move? Well,
2: so I talked to, uh, I did talk with a, a district chair in Arizona who screens, um, but, you know, she can get um, kind of overruled by higher up officials in the county party, so there's a limit to what she can do on her own to keep out people who she aren't who she views as unhelpful. But you know what she's really hoping is that uh, cooler minds prevail, and you know this is not what moderates and independents want, and that. Um, you know, Republicans who actually want to win are going to be more focused on trying to appeal to them.
1: That seems like a real cross your fingers and hope to die kind of strategy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like a real like, okay, I think if I think I can, it's going to work out as opposed to more than that. Well, I mean,
2: I I don't know about that. It's you know, this is politics. So um, it's numbers. And so, you know, they have, they believe that the numbers are on
1: their side and that, you know, on the moderate side.
2: Yeah. It's sort of like a silent majority kind of a theory that, you know, if you really, you know, not just, if you really listen to not just the loudest voices, but the, you know, the people who are really going to vote and, um, are really going to decide the election, then that's not the QAnon supporters.
1: It's interesting because it puts a lot of the onus on voters Um, because I look at what you've laid out in your reporting and because of the partisan nature of what's going on, it seems to me the solution really has to come from Republicans themselves, sorting out who they are, what they stand for, what they'll tolerate, what they won't. And, you know, if you look to Washington, for instance... You don't see a lot of people standing up and saying, you know, this is a, you know, calling out the big lie, basically. And when they do, they're they're bumped out of the party like Liz Cheney. And so it really seems to me that this issue you're talking about with the grassroots, it's going to have to come. Whatever happens next will need to be sorted out with Republican voters.
2: I think this is another under, another way of understanding why Liz Cheney got pushed out of House leadership for voting to impeach Trump for inciting the insurrection and why so many Republican members of Congress voted to object on January 6th, because this their constituency is the party organization and the party organization at the local level in their districts is increasingly filled with people who believe the election was stolen.
1: Isaac, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Isaac Arnsdorf covers national politics for ProPublica. And that's the show. I am so thrilled to be back at it after a little break. I wanna give a shout out to all the amazing folks who filled in for me while I was out. Seth Stevenson, Aaron Ryan, Dan Diamond, and especially Mary Wilson, who has been my ride or die on this show from jump. Now you all know why. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, and of course, Mary Wilson. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery, make sure we dot the I's, cross the T's. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear,
2: everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand